It's easy in Advent to uh, spend all kinds of quality time pointing people to the pending birth of Jesus, our Messiah. And we, we did it. We spent Advent going through these psalms that spoke of the, uh, of the Messiah that would come and, the, and the, sort of the nature and characteristics of this Messiah, that he was just and kind and he was righteous and he was fair. And there was a worthiness to worship this Messiah. And then we get to Christmas and we tell the story and there's shepherds and there's, and there's wise men and there's uh, um, uh, Herod and there's Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus and there's a, a manger and no room in the end. We do the whole story and we tell it and we celebrate it. And then we get to like January 1st and we're like, all right, baby Jesus is born. Let's spend 15 weeks in the book of Joel or something like that. We'll like go to the Old Testament or eight weeks to fix your marriage in eight weeks, guaranteed. And that's cool, and Joel's a great book, and fixing your marriage is really important, but I feel like sometimes the church just jettisons too quickly from Jesus. And I don't want to do that right now. I want to spend the next couple months looking at these teachings of Jesus, these parables of Jesus. Jesus was infamous for teaching through this story idea, this thing called parable, this idea that... um, that he would use these stories upwards of maybe 38, 40 times in the New Testament. He uses this genre of didactic lesson teaching through narrative, through story. And I want to spend the next seven weeks with you and some of our other teachers looking at some of these teachings of Jesus. I'm fascinated by Jesus. I'm fascinated um, as a teacher about the master class of teaching that he does. I'm fascinated um, by um, his uh, compassion for people and his commitment to the word. I'm fascinated about uh, Jesus' leadership and direction uh, to his community and how that extends to us today. I'm fascinated by scripture, and I just would hope that you would join us for the next few weeks as we do this. We're going to look in particular at seven different parables in the book of Luke. It, it's kind of a happy accident, um, but um, we're going to look at uh, different parables. And so the first thing that I want to do is I just want to kind of name what a parable is. This might be a new idea for some of us. And so why don't we put up the dictionary definition? And so the dictionary definition of parable goes something like this. It's a fictitious story to illustrate a moral or religious truth, lesson, or attitude, or maybe even we would add behavior. And so this definition comes from several different online dictionaries that I kind of built together to kind of create one. And so parables are not uh, invented by Jesus. In fact, the Old Testament has somewhere between 9 and 12 parables, depending on how you would classify them. And that's a little tricky, but they're, they're there. Um, it was used before Jesus showed up on the scene. But Jesus um, takes it to the next level. He um, embraces this style of teaching that is really, really unique to him, more than any other of his contemporaries and those that had gone before him. This specific use of telling a story to illustrate something deeper. The problem, though, that I have with this definition is the notion of the word moral or religious. What's unique about Jesus is that Jesus showed up to tell us that the very heart of his father was not rules and the law and the weight-bearing of the law. He came to say it's something wholly other. If this is about moralism, this is about you then playing a game to be good enough better, always striving to do more, wondering where you stand before God, whether or not I'm good enough categorically. Have I said the right things, done the right things, shown up at the right places, given enough money away? Have I done all the moral things right to earn my favor before my God? 
And Jesus came to say, that hustle is impossible. You see, I know a lot of you, and I know a lot of you can be good for about five minutes. Maybe some of you over here, maybe like five hours. And if, and if we're really serious, Noah probably could go five days of being totally good. But regardless, if you know me, it's like five seconds. I can't be good for five minutes. On the outside, I can, but what's going on up here is just, you know, it's terrible. We can't be good enough. We can't do this enough. We can't earn God's love and favor. And that's what Jesus is showing up to say. So if this is our definition, then the whole point of Jesus' teaching around parables is just moralism. It's just this idea of being better and doing more. I don't think that's what it is. Now, some of you grew up in the church, and you have a Sunday school definition of parable. Who can, oh, you put it up to her. That's okay. I was going to have to ask a question. But, hey, Erin Pewin in the back. She's doing a great job back. We're proud of you. Some, you can go ahead and put it up now, Erin. It's all right. No, it's good. It's good. Here we go. Next one. There we go. Sunday school definition is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. How many of you heard this growing up somewhere in the church, that a parable is an earth? Raise your hands higher. I want to feel like people are out there. There we go. Good. Me too. I remember Mrs. Todd's class in fourth grade at Ward Presbyterian Church in Livonia, Michigan, teaching me that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Man, that was really easy to go home and recite that to my parents. How was church today? Great. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. What does that mean? I have no idea. But the more you think about it, is it a story for earth or is it a story for heaven? Does it have any earthly good? If the meaning is just in the forever world? You see, I think one of the great evangelical disasters, which is a line from Francis Schaeffer, of the last hundred years is the um, subtle... Uh, teaching of the separation of earth and heaven. That we make this idea, if you died tonight, do you know where you would go? The famous statement. It's very heavenly bound. It's very forward thinking. But what is it, good does it have to do with me today? And the church can care, and it ought to care, about your soul. It ought to care about that. But sometimes when we talk about Jesus and his message and his word, sometimes we get the idea that it's really not about this life, it's, it's about a life to come. It, it's about something else that's going to happen. I read some um, Jürgen Moltmann this week, which everybody should do just for kicks and giggles, and this theologian says, God does not save his creation for heaven, but he renews it on earth. You see, in the eyes of God and in Jesus and the Spirit, heaven and earth are endlessly connected. When he teaches his disciples to pray, he says, pray on earth as it is in heaven. There's this relationship between the two. They're not separate. And yet I do think that this definition, though it's kind and fair, I think it's a little bit limiting. And so what if I offered a different definition? This is one that um, I didn't write, but I totally embrace. So let's put up the next one, my refined definition. A parable is a window. It's a window in the distance. And as I see it and I look out the window, I can see the things behind it. And the things behind it are the kingdom of God, which is elusive and mysterious. But the closer I get to the window, the pane of glass begins to turn and it actually becomes a mirror. And the mirror then looks back at my own soul. So the intention of the parable is to tell the world about the kingdom of God, but the closer you get to it, it's actually telling a story about yourself. It's actually telling a story about what's going on on the inside. 
I think this is important because if we want to avoid the pitfalls of trying to understand parables or the gospel and not slide into these slippery slopes of um, law-abiding moralism, uh, then we have to figure out what is the intention of these teachings. So let's talk about the what and the why of parables. What happens in a parable and what I think Jesus' intention is. So if we put up that one, the what is that just about, I'm going to go ahead and say it as far as my memory goes, every parable in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's none in John, is about a person or a, or a group of people. Everyone has a common element or a common space or a common tangible thing, and every parable has a surprise. The first two are obvious. A man goes out and sows seed, right? The common person, the common element seeds. And he's going to talk, we're going to talk about the sower in a little bit. We're going to talk about that which grows, the harvest. But every parable has a surprise. The surprise is sometimes really obvious, and sometimes you've got to hunt for it. Take the parable of the, uh, the Good Samaritan. Well, what's the surprise in the parable of the Good Samaritan? Um, a man, an Israelite, is walking down the road, and these people come, these gang of Ohio State fans jump him and pummel him and leave him naked in a ditch. And the priest walks by, and the Levite walks by, the worship leader, and they, they can't touch this person. They're going to temple to lead worship. And so God's people are not helping God's people, but yet there's a little bit of understanding that they had a role to play and they couldn't do it. But then the Samaritan walks by, the sworn enemy of Israel, and the Samaritan man picks up this body and tends to his wounds and carries him to the city and finds a hotel room for him and pays to have this man healed um, through medicine and care. Well, the surprise when Jesus tells the story is that the Samaritan is the hero. That's an obvious surprise. But sometimes the surprise is harder to find, and it takes a little bit of digging, and we're going to get into that a little bit today. The why, though, is this. I believe that every parable, essentially, is trying to teach the hearers what the kingdom of God is like, both here and there. Second, I think it's an opportunity for repentance. There is a um, Jesus as a rabbi is following a long line of prophetic speakers, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and, and, and the Old Testament prophets. And part of, um, part of the prophet's call is to invite people back into repentance. Parables are going to acknowledge our sin. And then there's renewal. This idea that Jesus is leading you into an invitation and not leaving you high and dry. So that's kind of the what and the why of parables. Okay? Now let's talk about what are some negative, positive and negative things that we can find in parables and what they are. One is that they're allegory, that they're going to tell a story and um, the, the, the people and the elements in the story can represent something else. This has been historically debated early in church history. It was, it was profoundly accepted. Um, and then it took, and it went through, I don't know, it, for a long time, it, we kind of backed off that. Now we're coming back to this idea that parables actually are allegories. They're stories telling a deeper story, and these things are symbolic and mean something. The hard part of this is what do they actually mean, and can you get 10 theologians to agree what the 10 elements mean? No. And, there are, and it, it's really hard to know. Jesus, the one that we're going to show today, the sower, he gives the answer to what the parable is. He tells you what these elements and these people and what they represent, but most of them he doesn't. So it's sort of left to you to kind of 
piece together. And the problem, though, with allegory is that we can take it too far and begin to miss the heart of the story and care more about who the people are. Okay? Within um, the category, the big meta-category of parable, you'll have riddles, um, taunts. This is a big Old Testament one where they're poking at you. They're taunting you. Uh, similitudes or metaphors. Uh, the kingdom of God is like, is a simile. Prophetic actions, and then there's even some proverbs, some um, little short statements, um, uh, creative short statements of truth. It's kind of like Twitter of the first century, you know, like 140 characters. But what it's not is it's not comfortable storytelling. Jesus is not telling you sweet little comfortable fables about talking ducks and happy people. When my kids were little, they had a four-page... Remember, the, you know those books for kids that are cardboard, and they're like, they're like this thick each page? And, I, and even though the, you would think they would find a better material, because when your kid starts chewing on it, the page just expands and it's super gross. Well, they had a book on Jonah. And I was like, oh, great. I'm in seminary. I'm studying the Old Testament. I know Jonah. Jonah's a hard book. There's only four chapters. Chapter one, uh, he gets tossed into a sea. Chapter two, he's in the belly of a whale and he prays. Chapter three, he asks the people to repent. And chapter four, he st- sits on the side of a hill and tells God to kill him three times. This is a great kid's book. So I'm sitting with Soren and Ellie on my lap, and I'm like, let's do some Jesus stuff. And we open up to chapter one, and I said, there he goes. And then chapter two, he's in the belly of the whale, and everybody's smiling. You know, he's in the belly of the whale, and he's praying, and everybody's having a good time. And then he spits him up, and he says, repent. And then I turned to chapter four, and the book said, the end. It didn't even show chapter four. Our kids are supposed to think that this is a happy, this is the saddest story in all of antiquity. Lord, I'd rather you take my life than live. Jesus is not telling comfortable stories. He's also not telling mundane stories. These stories are not about horticulture and agriculture and farmers and banquets and feasts and trees. They're not. If we get caught up in the technicality of it, we're going to miss the heart of it. It's not about moralizing. That's my big hang-up. We'll come back to that in a minute. We're not trying to psychoanalyze the characters and what they were thinking and feeling. that's, that's That's a minor idea. Somebody does something and it happens. And we've got to deal with it. But trying to get in their head to go, why? That gets tricky. We don't really know. The other one is that we can, we can, um, we can try to like, um, fuse it down to, to, um, to like a doctrine or simple doctrine. And the fact is that these stories have multiple doctrines. And the last one is not, it's not catharsis. We don't read it and purge ourselves and go, oh, I feel so much better about myself. The intention of parables was not to make you feel comfortable. The intention of parables was to cut you. And Jesus is trying to exact a response from his crowd. He is not there being soft. He is being firm. He's being firm. Moralizing. I really struggle with uh, the narrative in the church, throughout church history, but especially in the years that I've been alive and living and navigating church myself personally and uh, my friends, my neighbors, many of you in this room that grew up uh, in a church setting, in a Christian culture setting, that, 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 thank you, consciously and subconsciously, you do understand that every time the train honks, it's the Lord giving me an attaboy (laughs) about whatever I'm saying. It is providence at its best. And sometimes I'm like, should I say it? And I do, and the whole, I'm like, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Scott, I'm just, would you just follow me around and laugh at all my jokes everywhere I go? 
seriously, Scott, come to my house, sit in my living room, laugh at my jokes. My kids think they're so dumb. <laughs> I appreciate you. Um, moralizing. That there is a set of right things to do and a set of wrong things to do. Do the right things over and over and over. Avoid the wrong things. And if you get enough of those right, you'll be good. I have a problem with this. There's a theologian named Albert Moeller, who's um, he's a Southern Baptist theologian. And um, I don't always agree with Al Moeller and his, uh, his, his interpretation of the text. Um, but I do really appreciate um, his holy, um, devoted commitment to fighting against moralism in his own context. Um, he wrote an article a couple years ago from the Gospel Coalition. Let's put that quote up. Here's a quote. I'm going to read some more, but I just want to put this up. He says, in our own context, one of the most seduct seductive false gospels is moralism. The false gospel can take many forms and emerge from any number of political or cultural impulses. So the impulse is not derived from theology or the Bible. It's, it's more social. But nevertheless, the basic structure of moralism comes down to this, the belief that the gospel can be reduced to improvements of behavior. Now, do I think following Christ ought to produce an ethic in us that ought to be so wholly awesome that we ought to put that on display for our neighbors to see? Yes. And it should be above reproach. It should be so honest and compassionate and kind. Oh my gosh, if the church, could, you know, the word of the year, no, if the church for the next millennium could just focus on kindness, it'd be a game changer. I want us to behave like Jesus. I want our ethic to be Jesus. I want our ethos as a community to be Jesusly. I do. I don't think behavior is, is inherently a wrong um, fruit of this tree that Jesus is trying and the Lord's trying to birth in us. But when we make behavior central, we miss the gospel. Moralism is a left issue and it's a right issue. The right, it could be, we, maybe we would deduce it to say, here's your list, do good, don't do bad, be better, cross your fingers. But on the left, it could be that do-goodism becomes the gospel. And we forget the power of a resurrected Jesus as we're trying to be kind to our neighbor, as we're trying to be kind in society, as we're serving. And so moralism can show up on either side. Moeller's going to go on. You can look it up. It's the Gospel Coalition. I think it's from 2017. The seduction of moralism is the essence of its power. We are so easily seduced into believing that we can actually gain all the approval we need because of our behavior. And in order to participate in the seduction, we must negotiate a moral code that defines acceptable behavior with innumerable loopholes. Most moralists would not claim to be without sin, but merely that they are beyond scandal. And they consider this Sufficient. Indeed, one of the most insidious false gospels is a moralism that promises the favor of God and the satisfaction of God's righteousness to them as a sinner if they will only behave and commit themselves to moral improvement. The idea that we say, if I'm a moralist and I'm seeking God's favor, and so my, if my behavior is good enough, what will he do? He will shine his favor on me. He will grant me all of his favor and goodness. Um, and then I will, I will sense God's goodness and God's righteousness in my life, and I will find myself in a category of people that is very separate from the rest of the people in the world. 
Now I find my comfortability in this space and say, this is what it means to follow Jesus. And unless you're doing this, all of you are in another category. Because God's favor on me means God's favor is not on you. And because God's righteousness is on me, that means God's righteousness is not on you. And if I'm going to live and breathe in this space of God's moral goodness and righteousness, I then become the judge of the space that you find yourself in. Moralism is a false identity and self of who you are, and it's, ju- it's a false judgment on the person in front of you. And it's not the gospel. Muller concludes by saying, we are justified by faith alone and saved by grace alone, and we redeem from sin by Christ alone. Moralism produces sinners who are potentially better behaved, but the gospel of Christ transforms sinners into the adopted sons and daughters of God. Moralism can lead to some fine production, but it's going to strip you of your adoption because adopted children aren't hustling for their worth. They have been received by the Father. They have been received as sons and daughters of a king. They don't have to hustle for their identity anymore. But moralism will strip you of that. All right, that's kind of the fun part of what a parable is and what a parable isn't. So let's read a parable. Let's do Luke chapter 8. Let's do the parable of the sower. I picked this one first because it... um, Well, he gives the answer at the end, and so I don't have to figure it out. Here we go. Just kidding. It's just first. We're going to go eight through, like, chapter 18 over the next seven, eight weeks. While a large crowd was gathering with people, and they were coming to Jesus from town after town, he tells this parable. So there's this idea that Jesus is with his disciples, and and, um, people start gathering, and and, and this parable appears, and it's in Matthew as well. And uh, there's this idea that perhaps that he gets, is one of those that he gets in the boat and pushes out into the lake and uses the magnification of the water to tell a large crowd this story. And it says this, and he tells this parable, a farmer went out and sowed seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and it was trampled on, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. And other seed fell amongst the thorns, which grew up and choked and choked the plants. Finally, in verse 8, it says, But still other seed fell on good soil. And it came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. A hundred times more than was sown. And I think if we go to the next, uh, is that all? You, uh, that's it. We'll stop right there. So essentially, Jesus tells the story that a farmer goes out and tosses some seed, and some lands on one ground, some lands on another, some lands on another. And the three first places that the, the, the seed falls on, it creates some sort of problem. It doesn't grow well, but he said, but some falls on the good soil, and the good soil produces a crop. And then it kind of stops. That's the whole parable. But let me ask you this. By reading just these short four verses, can anybody identify what the surprise might be? What's the surprise in this passage? If I said, everyone has a surprise, what's the surprise in this? Just from a cursory reading. Anybody have an idea? There's no wrong answers. Actually, there are. But I won't shame you if you're wrong. I'll tell you you're wonderful and beautiful and God loves you. Does anybody know? What's the, what's the surprise? One of the surprises could be, what kind of farmer tosses seed on hard ground? Doesn't a farmer know to go out in his field and do this? Doesn't he tend to the soil? Doesn't he prepare? Is he just out like just throwing seed all over the place and just tossing it? Of course it's not going to grow. So if these people are hearing it and they are um, recognizing that Jesus is telling this parable and they're cluing in to sort of the mundane part, oh, this is a horticulture statement. He's He's teaching us about how to farm. That's a terrible farmer. That is a terrible, terrible farmer. Why would he throw seed there? Why is it? Of course it's only going to grow there. Well, that's a surprise. 
but you can also get into the idea that, you know, when you toss seed, the wind's going to blow it and it's going to land wherever it goes. So maybe that's not the surprise. This is one that you have to dig a little bit. There are coins from the first century that had emperor's faces on it and seeds. And writers in the first century that would refer to the emperor as the sower. And that the emperor would toss seed for peace and prosperity for Rome. He was the giver of all that was good and safe and protected. Is there kind of an underground story beneath the story, story beneath the story, taunt that Jesus is questioning whether or not the emperor is really Lord? There's other statements in the New Testament. There's no other name by one that, that, there's no other name under heaven that you can be saved except for that of Jesus, except in the first century it was Caesar. It's the same statement. No other name under the heavens that you can be saved except for that of Caesar. For Caesar is Lord. See, there's these taunts very beneath the surface about what was happening in society, in empire. And so maybe the crowd in context hears this and goes, "Uh uh-oh, uh-oh, I see what he's doing there. He's making a statement about who is actually the provider. Okay? So what are... um, Let's read what Jesus says uh, in the end here. He explains it. Let's go to verse, next one, verse 8. Verse 8. Uh, Still some fell in the ground and it was yielded a crop a hundred times more than the sowed. And when he said this, he called out, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Let's go to the next verse. Whoever has ears to hear. His disciples then asked him, what's this parable meant? And he said, well, I'll tell you. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing, they may not see, and though hearing, they may not understand. And he's quoting the Old Testament. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Now, do you see where the surprise might be if he's actually talking about who the sower is? Because emperor is not going to sow the seeds of Yahweh. He's super indifferent to that because the Caesar thinks he's Lord. So maybe this is what he's getting at. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear it, but the devil comes and takes it away, the word from their heart, so they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy and hear it, but they don't have any roots. They believe for a while, but in time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell amongst the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by life's worries and riches and pleasures, and they do not mature. But, however, the seed that falls on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and preserving produce a crop. So essentially, Jesus says, I'm going to tell you what these four spaces are. I'm going to tell you what happens when the seed falls on that. I'm going to tell you that the seed is the word of God. He doesn't say who the sower is, but we can imagine who that is. And he's saying that, that God is, is, is sowing seeds throughout creation. And some's going to fall here, and there's ramifications. And some's going to fall here, and there's ramifications. There's some that fall here, and then there's some that falls here, and it produces a crop. But even by hearing that, do we really understand what the parable of the sower is actually trying to teach us. I think there's three things that I want to walk away from this first parable that I think that are important, at least to me, but hopefully it will be for us. Let me go ahead and put that up here. It begins with hearing. Did you hear that line at the end when Jesus tells it? He says, those who have ears, let them hear. His imperative command to the crowd was this. If you have ears to hear, then hear. Now, is that just like, um, is that one of those proverbs that's just really easy to say? No, what's he saying? He's saying the world is full of noises, but the word of God is being sent out. 
and you, you were built and knit together and birthed together with ears to hear. What does it mean for you when God's word goes out to tune in and not tune out? Because he's saying there is a lot of things that you're going to take in in your life to help you understand your reality and to help you understand um, how you can be satisfied and saved. And Jesus is saying the word of God is going out. But if you have ears, what does it look like for you to tune in and make space to receive? We walk into church with a thousand complications and distractions we walk in. When, when, when we're at home and, and we're, we're at the dinner table and, you know, we're, we're trying to pray, but your eyes are, you're, you're, ever, you're not in that thing. Ann and I pray together every night before we go to bed. Every night. Mostly. But every night that we do, it's mostly a good prayer. But I'm going to tell you, half the time, she's half asleep. And her prayers are like this. Lord, thank And it's over. She doesn't even need to thank you, and she's done. And so I'll let her pray, and sometimes she stops, and just because I'm kind of in junior high still, I just leave her, come back 15 minutes later and say, continue, honey. And she's like, oh, okay, and then she just continues. She doesn't know that time has elapsed. It could be an hour, you know, I'm just rude that way. But I'm not with it. I'm not there. I'm not receiving. I can come in here. I can read my Bible. I can do all kinds of spiritual things. I can, but, 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 but am, I, am I paying attention? Church, if you have ears to hear, then hear. Then hear. The second thing that I don't want to miss in this doesn't really have a lot to say even about the text itself, but it's this pivot towards discipleship. Jesus speaks meta to the crowd, and then he turns to his disciples, and they say, teach us what it means. It, the one thing I wish the Gospels did more of was like gave more description and adjectives and timelines. Jesus teaches to the crowd, and he says this thing. We have no idea how long it takes for the next line. Uh, Rabbi, would you teach us what this means? It could have been five minutes. It could have been five hours. It could have been five days. But at some point when Jesus was with his disciples, and he's done the macro meta teaching, they're sitting at his feet. They turn to him, and they say, teach us what it means. See, there's a pivot in their own life towards discipleship. And they know when he pivots to them, he's going to give it to them, and it might hurt. It might be difficult. He didn't give the explanation to the crowd. He turns to them, and he's going to give it. And that's where it's going to cut. That's where it's not going to be comfortable. I remember when I first started here seven and a half years ago, one of our elders, Alan Love, super wise, said to me one day, I don't think the intention of a worship service is comfortability. I think that limits the weight and strength and power of God's spirit in our midst. We should never aim for comfortability. There ought to be room for the spirit to cut. I think that's fair, but we avoid it. But the disciples say, teach us. You just said this thing. We're not sure we totally get it. We're with you. You know, Peter's like, was that just about sowing seeds? I don't understand. I'm a fisherman. Is, is Matthew, I'm a ta- I, Like, what, what does it mean? 
tell us what it means. There's a pivot to discipleship. One of our three goals for the year, uh, the first one was to make space to belong. The second one was to disciple our community to holistic health. And the disciples are practicing their own discipleship. They're pivoting to receive, to learn. And I think that as we study God's word, some of us have to make that move from the crowd to the disciple. And we got to make that pivot. we got to make that move. And it's happening in places. Danielle Hughes, I think, is over there. She's doing yeoman's work in discipling women in the women's leadership team. And she ought to be commended for her faithful, steadfast discipleship of a group of people for the last three years. And James uh, uh, Train is leading the men's ministry. Mark Flowers did it for a while, too. And Joshua did it for a long time as well. There's, it's happening there. What, what Holly and Aaron are doing with a Rest and Return is about discipleship around God's word, about wrestling with God's word and letting the Spirit convict us, challenge us, cut us, form us. But discipleship is, it's a cho- you gotta, you got you to put one foot in front of the other and say, okay, I'm ready. It happens in small groups. It happens at staff meetings. It's happening with your elders when we get together. But there needs to be a constant commitment to the pivot to receive on that kind of level. And here's the surprise for me. Not only maybe the first two surprises that I said, but as I studied it, here's the surprise for me, personally. Let me put it up. We actually have all four of these soils. See, the moralism says you're the good soil and everybody else is the bad soil. You see, God's word is getting thrown around out there, and I heard it, and it took root, and I'm growing really beautiful flowers over here, but clearly you're not. Because some of you, it fell on some path, and the enemy came and took it away because you were impatient. Some of it fell on Rocky, and uh, you got really excited for a while, and you went on your first mission trip, and you came back, and you were ready to save the world, and nobody was keeping up with your speed and your pace, and so then you kind of quit and got bored and moved on to something else. And some of you have fell amongst thorns, and, and you're just too distracted with life's worries and wealth and riches and your bank account and, and hedonism and sex and drugs and rock and roll. I just dated myself there. But then, you're like, that's what you're, but I'm not because I'm in this box, and this box is good soil, and God's producing this amazing tree. It's a fruit's amazing, and it's big, and it's shady. You can come in for a while, but you can't stay. You've got to go back out there because i got it right. I'm good. You're not. And the judgment that we find ourselves in, if we believe that this is what this story is about, means that I will turn to you and I will wreak judgment upon you and I will say things like, you're not a very good Christian. You see, the church does a really good job just kind of creating its own measuring stick of value and worth. But but what if we were honest enough to say, um, there's plenty of times in my life and times in the last few weeks, few months, where it feels like the word of God falls and it's just getting trampled on. And the soil of my existence is so hard. The enemy's not necessarily attacking me, but it is capturing these seeds and taking them away, and I feel totally alone. What if I was honest, honest enough to say, The soil of my spirituality is rocky and I'm isolated at times and I feel horribly impatient most of the time. And I can stand in my little square and look out and say, where is everybody? Why is this happening to me? 
Where, where are you? Are you with me? Are you going to support me? Are you going to collaborate? Are you going to be my brother? Are you going to be my sister? Why do I feel alone? And out of that isolation comes arrogance, and I begin to judge you. And after time, I just get tired and I quit. Maybe, maybe if I'm honest, the, my, the soil of my spirituality is thorny which is just about distraction. And if I'm honest with you, that worry is a big part of my own anxiety. And money's a big part of my own anxiety. And life's pleasures is a big part of my own personal being. And I chase and I hustle after these things constantly. What if I could stop and say, thank you, Jesus, that every now and then your seed falls on something noble? The word for noble and good, it's, it's not as simple as good, like that's good coffee or a good movie. It, 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 the, the words here, kalos and agathos, you start to getting into some really profound depths of beauty and preciousness, excellent, worthy, joy and happiness. It's the things that Jesus wants to do in you. It's the things that Jesus wants to do for you. It's what he's done and offers to us. It's not that I produce a good crop. Did you notice at the end of it, it doesn't say he produces a good crop. It says that the soil is good, and the only thing that is good in this world is Christ resurrected. And that's the seed that's supposed to take root. And when it does, that produces my identity as a precious, beloved, adopted son of the king. The surprise, friends, is it's not just me. It's all of you, too. You possess all four soils. You possess all four soils. It's not that you're the good one and everybody else is the bad. It's that all of us are complex. We find ourselves in different seasons at different times needing different things. But God keeps sowing the seed. He never quits. And he lets it fall on all kinds of soil and places because he understands our brokenness and our complexity. Falls on us because there's something holy and good about Jesus that wants to do the long transformation, the long discipleship in our lives, our hearts, our beings, to be more like him and less like the world. And we do this because he is good, not that I can do anything to earn it. I can't earn it. I can't earn God's favor. I can't be good enough. But Christ is, and that has to be sufficient. We'll finish with this. The book of Titus writes this incredible, incredible passage. At one time, we too were foolish and disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. This is a straight reflection of the parable we just read. We lived in malice and envy and being hated and hating another. However, when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, appear, he saved us not because of what right good things that we have done, but because of his own mercy. He saved us through the washing and rebirth and renewal of his spirit, who he poured out on us generously on all kinds of soil and spaces. Through Christ Jesus, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, adopted sons and daughters, having the hope of eternal life. For this is a trustworthy saying. And I want to stress these things so that those who have trust in God might be careful to devote themselves in discipleship to doing what is good. <laughs> it comes back to good. 
But the only good thing is Christ. And these are excellent and profitable for everyone. There's no application today. But know that the seed of God's word has been tossed upon you. And the word says you are beloved and you can find everlasting life.